You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. This is Jessica, and I will be your host for today's podcast. Thank you for tuning in. On today's episode, we are talking with Hank Stratton and Ted Kraus. Hank teaches acting, and Ted Kraus is the technical director at the School of Theater, Film, and Television at the University of Arizona. Together, they represent performance and production, and they both see theater as a place for problem-based learning, where students learn soft skills that translate into every profession. Theater teaches self-awareness, empathy, as well as project management skills. Hank and Ted would like to see that all young people participate in the performing arts from elementary school through college and see the benefits as lifelong. Let's listen in to Tom's conversation with Hank and Ted from the University of Arizona. Hank Stratton and Ted Krause, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank it's nice you to very be much. Here. Yes, it's great to be here. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Hank, when did you start acting? I started acting in the sixth grade with a very sophisticated production of Macbeth. It was uh, <laughs> it was about six pages on ditto paper. Uh, do you remember dittos, Ted? You remember dittos? Yeah. Okay. And uh, I I got thunderous applause when I died. A I think it was a thirty minute death on stage. So I was hooked. <laughs> and that was the the hook. You were you were in. I I would I would like to say it was artistic and. Uh, ambition, but it was really probably more a stoke of the ego to the young yeah. 11-year-old. Were you in uh, high school theater? I was. I uh, did high school theater all the way through my senior year. Um, I had some opportunities to study um, abroad, and uh, I spent four years at a drama school in England. Um, and then I came back, and I was in the professional theater, worked on television, uh, bounced back and forth between New York and Los Angeles for all of my professional career. I still work in New York and Los Angeles, in addition to my teaching load and directing load here at the University of Arizona. I'm curious, um, Hank, were you in any other um, arts in high school? What about um, music and visual arts? I, I was. I was an instrumentalist as well. I played the violin from about the third grade on. And uh, it's actually something that I gave my daughter, who is now a junior at UCLA, but she was a, an instrumentalist as well. So it's, uh, we'll probably come back to this, but it, it's interesting that in each of the, I think music and theater, you have that similar learning curve of being handed a, a script or a score. And uh, I don't know about you, but having that immediate oh my god there's no way that i can learn this and <laughs> and then going up the curve and and then enjoying at least initial mastery as part of a a performance a, a couple months later yeah and you know the difference for me and i don't know if this was your experience but um as an instrumental artist you are given a score and you you have a series of notes and you have a very defined rhythm uh, so the outcomes are more immediate uh, when you're working in the theater I find and I think that this is something that the students find as well that the um, that the objectives are slightly more um, subjective 
if you will, uh, that there are many interpretations to the way that an actress can approach Blanche Dubois. I mean, obviously they have to say all the words in the right order, but whatever they bring to it um, feels a little more undefinable. And yet, if you listen to Itzhak Perlman talk about preparing to play Tchaikovsky's D major concerto, he will talk about unit practice and how it's all the same. And he said the other, the, the, the passion, the romance of the music is what really defines it. So I suppose we really are talking about the same, the same objectives. Ted, you had a different path to the theater. I did. Uh, a similar path, actually, because I was also a musician in high school. I, uh, I went to the High School of Music and Art and was a bass player, um, double bass, and found the theater in high school. Uh, you know, production work, I, was, I did some stage management, and we, uh, I built some scenery, and then I did an off-off-Broadway production some, some friends had produced, and then uh, realized I could go to college for this and actually went to college to be a lighting designer and realized pretty quickly that that was not a good match. But then I found myself in the shop and found that this is a place I, I wanted to, to be and wanted to create. And the difference for me about being in the shop, building a piece of scenery um, that was different uh, from being in an orchestra was that there was so much more accountability, um, individual accountability. You know, if you build a piece of scenery and it does not fit on stage, everybody knows who built that piece <laughs> of scenery. Whereas when I was a mediocre bass player, uh, you know, if I miss that note, uh, you know, it's gone. It's a momentary thing of, okay, we're on to the next phrase or whatever, and you just keep going. Um, but that accountability was, was kind of devastating right at the beginning or not devastating, but it was, uh, it was an interesting thing where all of a sudden it's like, Oh, oh, oh every choice I make actually does have a ramification. It may not be today, but it may be in a week or two weeks or whenever you're installing the scenery. And so, um, so I really wholeheartedly got into the theater when I was in college. I'm, I'm curious about what drew you to the, the back, uh, the back of the house. <laughs> is, is it, uh, do you, do you find it a creative exercise? Is it, uh, is it the project management of going from nothing to something very tangible in a, in a matter of weeks? What, what is it? Um, it is now the problem solving. It's a, it's a big puzzle. I, um, uh, I like to be able to control the, um, the outcome a little bit more, uh, in terms of finding what the, the problem is, identifying the problem and, and then finding a sol possible solution. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I, I find that problem solving process, uh, to be really captivating. And that's what I like to watch in my students where again, we also have a, a multiple amount of available solutions and um, it's choosing the right one. That's the one that's correct for this context. You know um, you can build it any way you want, but what is the budgetary constraint? What is it supposed to be doing? What's the intent of the director? What's the intent of the designer? Right. What's the like you, like you said, how big is the stage? Yeah, that too. How many changes do we need to make? Yeah. Are Ted, are you, uh, would you consider yourself a capable project manager now? I do. I do. Well, I do at this point. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's an ongoing process of learning. Yeah. I'm getting better. Uh, I, uh, I actually teach a class in project management now to my students, because if you look at, uh, the information coming out of something like the project management in, um, Institute, 
you know, they will very clearly say that there are six stages to any project. It doesn't matter if you're building something for NASA or if you're building a piece of scenery. And so getting my students to understand that there is a framework within which they can, you know, create this process um, to solve these problems. It doesn't matter how big or how small, you know, and um, so that's what we try to focus on. Let me um, let me plug uh, PMI. The Project Management Institute has an education foundation that sponsored the development of hqpbl.org. It's a, a great site that, um, that that shows the dimensions of high quality project based learning. Um, we we helped the Buck Institute develop that with uh, some of the best advisors in the in the sector. So we we appreciate um, PMI and the importance of project management. And it, I think it's a, a often overlooked part of the, one of the benefits of the performing arts is that it's uh, it's almost always a project with a, a conception, a beginning, a middle, and an end. It, that defines the process. Yeah, really. that is exactly right. And I think what Hank and I found over the last six years is that the parallels between what he does from a performance side and what I do from um, – a production side are they overlap so much in terms of the language we use with our students about um, about the choices that they're making and how they assess those choices and how they come to those choices and what's the intent of those choices and the context of them. Um, it does. It really does define the entire process. And and what's great about what we do is that there is this sense of self assessment, you know, almost at every stage of it. You know, the the door fits in the opening. It either fits or it doesn't, you know, um, and then there is an assessment, which part of this is, is wrong. You know, is the door built too big? Is the frame built too small? Does, you know, and then you come up with a solution, you know, did the designer change their mind? Did that get communicated across? So there are all these soft skills as well in terms of how you work through these projects. Yeah. And what we were finding is that there was, um, commonality and intersection in that, um, uh, problem-based uh, learning outcome of, of whether a, an actor is using a tactic, what we call a tactic or an action in a particular um, scene to accomplish their objective, the, the character objective, and which in the character objective and the actor objective should be very, very similar. Um, so there was a, this, this conversation actually started, Tom, with Ted and I uh, collaborating on a production of The Man Who Came to Dinner here at the University of Arizona, which is a play that I had uh, done the revival of on Broadway in 2000 um, with Nathan Lane, Gene Smart, and Harriet Harris. But I was directing and I was talking, I was having a conversation with one of the actresses and I said to her, um, Ted, maybe you can jump in here because you were the one observing this. So, I, so Hank walks up to the stage and the, the actress has just done something downstage, right? And, and Hank says, uh, he walks up and he, with his great energy, walks up and says, what are you doing? And she says, uh, I made a choice. Was I that accusatory? No, it didn't sound, it, it was charming at the time. Uh, <laughs> really and there's so. like, there's clearly a relationship between you and the actress. And she said, Oh, I made a choice. And Hank said, uh, did it work? <clears throat> and she said, no. <laughs> and Hank says, can you make another one? And she said, yes. He said, can you do it in the next five minutes? Yes. <laughs> And the scene progresses, you know, and I, and I, after at a break or after the rehearsal, I walked up to him, I said, I love the fact that we're talking about choices. And I started changing the language that I was using with my 
technical directors, um, because that's what we're doing. It's you're making a choice and then you're trying to figure out whether that choice worked or didn't work. And it's a little more organic for Hank because, you know, there's this objective, you know, did I get what I want from the scene or did this character or did this come through or whatever? And for us, it's a little more tangible of, you know, does the door fit in the opening? So, so Hank, um, let's say a high school student uh, visits you in uh, beautiful Tucson, is thinking about enrolling at, uh, at Arizona and you get the chance to have lunch with them. How do you make the case for theater? Oh my gosh. I make the case for theater every single day. We're right in the middle of recruiting season. I just, in fact, I just got back from Chicago for, um, uh, three days. We were there for the national unified auditions for this very purpose. Um, uh, so I've been having this conversation over and over. I, I, I think, um, very much. And I think, uh, the three of us all share this, that, uh, the idea of the arts being extracurricular is, um, undermining, um, problem solving. It's undermining, uh, creativity, uh, I think it should absolutely be core curriculum. In fact, I often say that every business student should take an acting class and the scientists, I teach an honors class for non majors. They're mostly medical students. And every one of our, my actors should take something in the sciences and something in business. Um, but I, I make the case for theater because they are, even if they do not end up, um, professional, actors, which is really the focus of our degree. It's a, it's a bachelor of fine arts. So it is a pre-professional degree. The soft skills that Ted was talking about earlier, earlier translate into every single walk of life. Um, they're, they're curating empathy and problem-based learning. They are looking at, at project management every single day, a scene, um, even an acting exercise. Ted and I share this, this language of, I talk about an actor's toolbox, um, making a choice, uh, building a character, building a scene, telling a story. I think that they're invaluable skills that they get in theater. There's, uh, there is also an element of analysis. They take a script and we have to break it down into beats. And it's almost like you, you come up with a blueprint to character and story in a way that very few other curriculum, uh, offer. Uh, and, and I'm not, I'm not certainly criticizing or undervaluing, um, my colleagues in the science and the math buildings. I think that that's essential <laughs> to us all remaining on the planet, but you, you're not going to get quite the empathetic response from that analysis. There's, there's an equation and um, you know, maybe physics is as theoretical as perhaps theater is, but um, it's, it, it's those skills that I, I really sort of hone in on. Uh, I'd actually like to have both of you talk a little bit about empathy and what, young people learn about empathy, both the sort of front and back of the house. What, what, what does empathy have to do with acting? Well, empathy, empathy is everything to, to the actor. I mean, that is, I mean, they often, no, listen, I'm going to, it sounds like I'm going to contradict myself because an actor will come into my studio and say, well, I'm not feeling it. And I'm, or, 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 or I was successful today because I felt it or I cried real tears, but they didn't actually advance the story because they didn't connect with anything other than their feeling. They have to connect to action. They have to connect to story. They have to connect to the, we've, Stanislavski called it communion on stage where you're actually in alignment with the other person that's in the scene and therefore in alignment with the audience as well. So you're sharing a story with 
uh, anywhere from 50 to thousands of people every night. But um, I assume that every student that comes into my acting laboratory is a sentient human being. So we start there. Um, what's beyond that? But curating those uh, those skills of uh tuning into how human beings behave, think, move um, in time and space within story is essential. It's, it's core to um, being successful uh, in the theater. And I think that those are the, those soft skills, as we say, are, are, are missing um, a lot in, in business and in science. I was doing a national uh, campaign for, um, for a, a pharmaceutical um, I will, I will, it will remain anonymous for now, but I was talking to a, a gentleman from McCann advertising and I was sort of, you know, riffing on how I didn't really have any marketable skills. And, you know, all I could do was pretend to be other people and smile on cue. And he said, you, you're, you're absolutely wrong. He said, I'd love for you to come into my office in New York and connect with people and teach them how to do presentations because what's what's missing is that idea that sharing ourselves is really advancing um the story whether it's uh in business or whether it's a play so hank i'm i'm curious a lot of our um listeners work in k-12 education uh, what if you could wave hank's magic wand what what kind of participation in the performing arts would you see in k-12 um gosh that's that's such a uh, a good i love that idea of having that magic wand to wave if i could wave the magical wand the hank wand and change k through 12 curriculum i would um and this is just my experience in the california schools where i grew up in the california schools and then i put a uh, a child through public school in California, um, something that disintegrated after Proposition 13 was instrumental music and uh, school-supported theater. That by the time that my daughter went to school, those um, those programs had to be supplemented by the parent, and they were they were valued by the state and and by the state budgets. Before I would put instrumental music back in, I would. I would support uh, theater in um, primary grades and high school. I would um, house to half on the idea of competitive choir. <laughs> I would simply make it about putting putting together beautiful music and, and watching students cooperate. What's happened is that because it's being parent driven, it's becoming more of a more of a sports centered uh, competitive thing. By, by the way, Hank, do you love the sing off that? competitive acapella show on no i do no don't get me wrong i i love that that and i think that i think that one of the things that we've really done wrong is giving participation trophies and orange orange slices are fine but participation trophies (laughs) and not keeping score and all of that stuff you know mitigating our kids anxiety and teaching them that you know there aren't winners and losers that you know i think that that's just wrong-headed but that's a different podcast I, but I, I do think that what's happened is because parents are getting driven um, and they're supporting it, that they want to they want to win. They want some sort of outcome that I don't think is um, 
is sound for our right. kids. I think that I think that doing the doing and what Ted and I were just talking about of like the the collaborate you know because empathy is the is the mm-hmm. nucleus of collaboration. Right. Yeah, it really is. In in any in anything, I mean, that's what we want to teach our kids, especially from in K through twelve, who are then going going to go off to college and find their own path. But if I, you know, a, a buddy of mine ran, uh, he was a city manager outside the San Francisco area, and he 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 was responding to this crisis in public education by going door to door and saying, Hey, Hey guys, do you want to pay a surcharge in tax in tax to, to get these arts programs back in our schools? Or do you want to supplement your, your kid's education privately? And it's going to cost you three times as much. And I said, wow, I'm so impressed with the fact that you not only saw that that was a need, but that you responded. And he said, Hey, listen, and this is a guy that went to Harvard business school. He said, I don't remember math class. I don't remember AP history. What I remember is choir with you. Mm-hmm. That's what I remember. And I remember how, how silly it was and how fun it was doing the music man with you after school. Mm-hmm. And I went, that's exactly right. We don't remember algebra. I mean, I sort of well, do. But this is the thing. I yeah. mean, this is exactly the thing. This is why the theater is such a perfect model of a problem-based learning environment. Right. It is mission critical. You know, it is mission driven. There are constraints. There's creative tension. You know, uh, I really don't care whether or not I'm working with a budget of 3000 or 5000 or 6000 or when I was working professional and I had budgets of 10 to 15 to $16,000 or if you're working on Broadway and you have a lot more zeros behind it at some point some designer wants something more than what you can afford and that creates a creative tension between the technical director and the designer and between the designer and the director and sometimes the technical director and the director and you know, creative tension of, of, you know, we have these set parameters, we have so much time and so much money. And what that'll, that conversation does is it forces everybody to say, well, what are my preconceived notions about this? So do we understand? Would you buy the argument that at every grade span, you know, a span of a couple of years, every student should participate in at least two performing art experiences? Absolutely. Yeah. All the time. In fact, my answer to the question you asked, Hank, would be: um, Do you have a magic wand too? Is this your TED magic wand? I think this is my TED magic wand. Um, What I would do is I would uh, I would integrate it into the math classes, and I would integrate it into whatever the Mm. physics class is, is because you know what are we doing? We're building something to a specific size, and I you know I teach in my intro class. You know I teach kids how to do a cut list. How do how do you cut? How do you do the math to figure out what the pieces of framing need to be. Um, and as, and as Hank was saying, you know, a lot of them don't remember fractions and a lot of them don't remember algebra and you think, okay, but now you, now you're doing something to a purpose. You know, uh, I have, I teach a graduate level class in, in structural engineering and I am not an engineer. Um, but I teach them the basics of it and it is much easier to break this language down of the mathematics of it, if you can say, but, but we're working to an objective. All we want to find out is how much will it bend, right? (laughs) You know, that that's what we want to know. And then ultimately if it bends too much, it's going to break, but let's hopefully we don't get there. So, you know, I would turn, tie it into the math classes uh, and, um, and really build it and support it as a problem-based model because, you know, and I would also go on to say that the creative tension really parallels this idea of cognitive dissonance where sometimes you are, you want something and, and what you're seeing and what you're uh, living are just not the same thing. You know, you can either turn into that 
discomfort, right. that dissonance, and you can ask more questions or you can let it wash over you and just accept whatever yeah, that confusion that's a, is. That's a great point. I think performing arts might be, well, and sports would too also be um, the place where you would experience extreme discomfort. Mm-hmm. Yes, right? exactly. And getting comfortable with I'm, being uncomfortable. Yes. yes. I think the, well, that is exactly right. That's exactly the oh, underlying boy. theme of the after action let, reviews. Uh, let, of, let me dive into another. Um, I want to talk about yeah, um, formative feedback. Um, I've argued that in all the instances where I've seen teenagers do world class work, whether that's in uh, marketing or writing or in the performing arts, that it always was the result of really tough feedback mm. from an external source. But the, the magic, especially for young people, is that they were in a safe space, a safe environment where they felt a sense of belonging and safety, where they could hear and make use of really tough feedback. Do you, do you buy that? 100%. I, I buy it. Although I, I buy it and sell it. Yeah. And I, I mean, we try not to do it. Um, we try not to make it too harsh, but, um, but it pointed, you know, and yeah. I, Hank and I were talking about this over dinner a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, for me, it's so much more tangible that I can, I can talk to a carpenter in the shop and say, you know, get them to identify what the problem is and then get them to identify what the problem they were trying to solve is and get them to list their options and then say, well, which one do you want, you know, what consequence do you want to deal with? Because none of these are perfect and then make them make a choice and get them agency in that process. And the more you do that, the more you can, you can say to them, well, you have these skills. This is now you're apl- you're applying your but I, 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 technique on something else, and and Hanks is more organic. But on both, I'd, I, I'd love to know both um, for both of you. How do you help young people develop a picture of good? Well, it's mm. uh, it, yeah, mm. exactly. I mean, you've got to teach them to see some. You know, you you've got to teach them to see it or to feel it. Um, one of the things that I try to do, um, and Ted and I in that same dinner, we were talking about how um, one of the thing, one of the uh, blowbacks that we're seeing from this, you know, participation trophy um, generation is that they are ill-equipped to deal with anxiety and to deal with very direct feedback mm-hmm. oftentimes. Um, in, in my program, um, it tends to attract students that are striving for what you're talking about, that, that good or better. Um, so what I try to do is, is create um, an environment where we start with what's succeeding. What's, what, what, su- what was successful about what we just did? Right. Now, let's go a step further. Let's go deeper. Let's dig in. Um, and I'm very, I'm very, very direct with them. I'm very constructive, but I'm very direct. So I, 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 I to your point, Tom, of trying to, how do I say this, curate that desire to make something better without creating anxiety is a, is a, is a daily, a mm-hmm. daily struggle yeah. that it's never good enough. Well, yeah, it, it, without trying to be this disappointed parent figure who's going, you know, nothing yeah, exactly. you do is good enough for yeah. me. But thank you for, I guess, thank you for trying, but it's still you, you know, yeah. we're trying not to do that. But, you know, I have this experience with my technical directors. I had a young lady come up to me, a, a, one of my students, a young woman came up to me and she said, do I have to put in this detail on the drawing? And I looked at her and I said, well, you do now. And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, 
you asked the question. And she said, right. And I said, you know the set better than anybody. You're the technical director for the show. Nobody else in the world knows this approach to this problem as you do. You think you're the only person who's going to ask this question? And she said, oh. I said, so if you've asked it of yourself and you've answered it, you you kind of are obligated to put in that little detail. And so now let me ask you, why don't you why why don't you want to do it? And she said, it's just more work. And I went, uh-huh. Good. Okay. Good. So now we understand what you don't want to do, but but she kind of laughed and she said, yes, okay. And we do the same thing when we're bring if we send scenery to, you know, again, back to the empathy thing, we if we send scenery to the paint shop and it's not prepped, you know, what we have told the paint shop in our environment, in our school is if it's not prepped, you send it back to the carpenters. We have to get it ready for you. It's not your job to a fix it for us or B paint over it if it's not right. And in those few instances where they go ahead and paint it anyway, and it looks bad we have a conversation in my shop where it's like, well, it's true. They should have come back to us. But on the other hand, you should know what a finished piece of scenery is mm-hmm. and you should know what's prepped and ready to go to the paint shop. Cause it's not really their job. It would be great if they had done that, but you know, without again, pointing the finger and saying, well, they didn't do it either. It's like, yeah, that doesn't really help. So how do you get that quality control? And, um, Again, it's contextual, you know, I mean, if you're doing man who came to dinner, a finished opulent interior, that's one thing. If you're building Oklahoma, which is roughshod exterior farmhouse in Oklahoma, there's a different level of finish. But we talk about that in the project management class, too. You have to understand what the scope of the project is. And then there's personal integrity. Right. And then and then getting back to this idea of of uh, encouraging your students to strive for the good. Um, there's an, I I think that there's a misperception, um, among actors that on opening night, it's done, Mm -hmm. that they're, they're all aiming towards opening night and then opening night, it's all fixed. And in a certain way it is, you know, some of the blocking and obviously the staging just to keep everybody safe and to keep the story moving, it is fixed, but the interior work never ends. And I, I think that's a tremendous relief to artists. It was, it certainly was to me when I was first starting out that, um, uh, a very well-known director um when i was doing a a tony award-winning play called copenhagen which was actually sort of dovetailed physics and and theater and all of that and i learned a lot and i took an online physics class in order to prepare for it and all sorts of stuff that but there again that's another podcast but he said to me i said you know i've got to get it right and he said and i was in my 30s then and he said who says by opening night who says and i've taken that and i've and i've uh folded that into my curriculum uh just letting students know that opening night is, um, yes, that's a deadline of sorts, but it's not, it's not something that's fixed that you will continue to ideate and to problem solve and to grow and to curate and all of that stuff throughout the run. So you've got all of this opportunity. And then I give them a bonus round saying, and this is the first time you're going to play this part. Just wait until you return to this part in a couple of years, five years, 10 years from now. You know, it's not the only time you're going to play um, Constantine Trepleff in, in The Seagull. You're going to do it many, many times, and you're going to learn more as you develop as a person. So I think that that takes some of the pressure off them to um, to get it right, because I think trying to, quote, get it right, right. Um, is the uh, antidote to getting it getting it done well. Well, you, get, you guys have made a, 
a great case for the arts, particularly uh, theater is uh, a great place for human development. If our listeners want to know more uh, about your program or about uh, a case for the arts, uh, where, where could we send them? Uh, that would be awesome. Please send them to tftv.arizona.edu. And um, from there, you they can see all about the BFA programs uh, in technical direction, in acting, in musical theater, and MFA sound programs. design. We also have MFA programs in technical direction, costume design, scenic design, um, stage management. Uh, yeah, please, tftv.arizona.edu. That's great. And I think we're the only program in the country that actually teaches theater. So if you're, any of your listeners are interested in studying theater, they should just come to the University of Arizona. And it's in and Tucson. <laughs> and it's in Tucson. It's exactly. We've got all the acting in the musical theater and none of the snow. Fantastic. And none of the snow. <laughs> well, Hank Stratton and uh, Ted Krause, it's been a treat to have you on the Getting Smart podcast. Great. Thank, Thank you, you so Tom. Much, it was a pleasure Tom. being here. It was great. Thanks to Hank and Ted for speaking with us today. Their stories, experiences, and collaborations in theater show us how performing arts experiences are a great example of deep learning. For more on the global momentum for deeper learning, listen to episode 151 with Michael Fulton. Don't worry if you don't have a pen. We'll have it linked in the show notes and on the blog. And be sure to check out the Getting Smart podcast on iTunes or wherever you're listening and hit subscribe and also leave us a rating. And for more on all things innovations and learning, check out our blog as well at gettingsmart.com. That's it for today, listeners. Thank you for tuning in. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Jessica signing off.